Good morning, brothers and sisters. As we uh, come to this time around God's word, let's uh, bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come this morning to experience your rest. You have given us this weekend that we may have rest for our bodies, but you've given to us your Son that we may experience rest in our souls. And so we pray for this time in your word that, Spirit, you would feed us on the bread of life, who is Christ, that we may be satisfied in him and that we may be at peace in the midst of all that is going on in our lives this day. We give to you this time and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as uh, Gary shared, last last week was a tremendous blessing to hear from God's Word, to hear from Luke chapter 11, Christ's encouragement to us to pray, and the encouragement that Christ gave to us to pray as children of God in Christ, that through the work of the gospel, through Christ's death on the cross, we are full-fledged sons of God in Christ. And therefore we can come to our Father and we can pray with unashamed boldness. We can ask and we can seek and we can knock and we can be assured that He will hear us and He will answer us in His sovereign wisdom because we come to Him through the blood of His Son. We were encouraged last week that The way the Father answers us is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that when we pray for wisdom, the Holy Spirit counsels us. When we pray for joy, the Holy Spirit rejoices our hearts. When we pray for comfort, the Holy Spirit comforts us, that God answers our prayers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so this week I was trying to apply last week's message and just praying that the Father would allow me to experience more of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And as I did that, my thoughts were led to consider the Holy Spirit's favorite subject. The Holy Spirit's favorite topic. If you're wondering what the Holy Spirit's favorite subject is, it is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus. The Holy Spirit delights to exalt Jesus. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible to unveil Jesus. And the Holy Spirit delights in our lives to show us how wonderful and how powerful and how glorious Jesus Christ is. And so my heart was led to consider this passage that's before us, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. Because this is a passage about Jesus Christ. In this passage, we will find no responsibilities to fulfill. In this passage, we'll find no duties to perform. Instead, in this passage, we will find a person to adore. 
we will find a savior to worship. We'll find a person who is worthy of all our trust, all our love, all our affections, all of our commitment, all of our devotion, all of our emotions. We'll find him revealed to us in this passage. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would minister this passage to your hearts so that your hearts would be satisfied this morning in the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Luke 9, verses 10 to 17, we find the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is the miracle of Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying those meager resources into a massive feast that feeds thousands of people. Matthew says that there were 5,000 men in the crowd, aside from women and children. And some commentators have estimated that this crowd could have numbered in the 10,000s or 20,000s with everyone totaled. Jesus takes this small lunch no doubt given by a Jewish mom to her boy for the day, and he feeds the multitude. And the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is so important to our understanding of Jesus Christ. It is so critical to our understanding of our Savior that it is the only miracle recorded by all four gospel records. Aside from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle that Matthew records, and Mark records, and Luke records, and John records, and John sees this miracle as so important for our understanding of Christ that he devotes an entire chapter to the feeding of the 5,000. If you go to John chapter 6, you will find that the entire chapter is devoted to recording the feeding of the 5,000 and then explaining the significance of this miracle to our hearts. It is a climactic miracle in the life of our Lord. And the miracle itself is massive in scale. It has been called the greatest act of creation since creation. The greatest act of creation since Genesis chapter 1. Jesus creates out of nothing, ex nihilo, loaves and fishes, loaves and fishes, loaves and fishes. And the end result is that the crowd is satisfied. As an event, this miracle occurs at a defining transition moment in the life of our Lord. It is the final miracle he performs in what is called the great Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. For approximately one and a half years, Jesus has been in the northern region of Israel, ministering and preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and performing many miracles. At the end of his Galilean ministry, he will travel north to the cities of Tyre and Sidon and then down south to Judea and Jerusalem. And it is in Jerusalem that Jesus will be unjustly tried by wicked men and sentenced to die on the cross for our sins. This is the final miracle that Jesus performs at the end of the great Galilean 
ministry. And so it comes to us as a climax of all that Jesus has done in that time. And if you look at that ministry and all that he performed, if you even look at Luke chapter 8 and you see how he calmed the storm and he commanded the wind and he cast out the demons and how he healed the sick and how he raised the dead, Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle. And here we have the capstone, the apex, the conclusion of all that he has done in this land. And it is the feeding of the 5,000. It is no wonder that at the heart of this miracle then is the question surrounding Christ's identity. The question that introduces this passage is the question, chapter 9, verse 9, Herod asks, who is this about whom I hear such things? And the conclusion of this miracle is chapter 9, verse 19. Jesus asked Peter, verse 20, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, The Christ of God. At the heart of this miracle is the question, Who is Jesus Christ? John's Gospel says that this miracle was a sign It was one of the signs recorded in his gospel given that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Who is Jesus Christ? Our passage reveals Jesus Christ to be an all sufficient Savior. Our passage reveals Jesus Christ to be a Savior who is more than enough to meet every human need, who is more than enough for every impossible circumstance, who is more than enough for every problem that we'll ever experience in our lives, who is more than enough to meet us in our time of trial. Our passage points us to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And I know that you're used to to thinking of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in terms of its eternal aspects. I know that we talk a lot about how Jesus is sufficient for our standing before God, and Jesus is sufficient for forgiveness of sins, and Jesus is sufficient for eternal life. Jesus is sufficient for justification. But our passage this morning is going to reveal that Jesus is sufficient for the temporal aspects of our lives. That Jesus is sufficient for for bread. Jesus is sufficient for our pocketbooks. Knowing Jesus is sufficient for our relationships, for our parenting, for our jobs, for our future, for our uncertainties, for our doubts, for our fears, for our temptations. Whatever we may face in this life, the Spirit of God would teach us through this passage that Jesus Christ is more than enough. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you rely on Jesus, you have all that you need for life and godliness. You have more than enough for what you need. For any situation that you would face in this life, this passage points us to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for any need 
that we would experience in life. He is enough. He is enough. I'll just say this to shepherd your hearts because I know that for many of you, you have brought in this morning some burdens that you are carrying into this time of worship. I know that for many of you, God has you in a circumstance right now where, where God is calling you to trust him. That you don't know how it's going to work out. That you don't know the end or the conclusion. You're looking at this trial in your life and you feel like you don't have enough strength. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have enough energy. You don't have the resources to deal with this this issue in your life and you may have come burdened and weary and the Spirit is going to direct your attention this morning to an all-sufficient Christ. And He's going to encourage your hearts that the Jesus is more than enough for you that you can trust him. That whatever that issue is, whatever that burden is, it is safer in the hands of Jesus. And that though your shoulders are not strong enough to carry them on your own, his shoulders are more than enough. And if you place those burdens on Jesus Christ, he will show himself to be strong. know that as Labor Day weekend, this, this is the beginning of fall. And for many of us, this is, um, for my family, this is really the beginning of the, school, the year. This is, uh, you know, New Year's Day is kind of a formality. It's kind of halftime. This is where everything begins, is the fall. This is where new schedules, new plans, new priorities, new responsibilities, new ministries, everything starts now. And... I know that because many of us are starting new things that you may have come this morning with, with a busy heart. You, you may have come this morning with a cluttered mind. You're, you're already distracted by so many things that you need to do. And, and I just want to set before you as we begin this, this new year is the vision of an all-sufficient Savior. He will be more than enough for us. All we need to do is trust Him. Just trust Him. Just believe in Him. And He will prove Himself to be faithful. He is enough. Let me ask you this morning, what is that? one area of your life where God is calling you to trust Him? What is that one burden that you're carrying this morning that be causing anxiety or fear in your heart? And our passage will encourage us that you can lay those burdens at Jesus' feet and He will show Himself to be 
sufficient. In Luke 9, verse 10 to 11, we find two contrasting elements which will lead our hearts to trust Jesus more. First, a real simple outline. First, we'll see the disciples' insufficiency. And then second, we will see the Savior's sufficiency. First, let's look at the disciples' insufficiency. Verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. As we pick up the narrative here, the disciples have just returned from a busy season of ministry. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sent the apostles out to preach, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he called them to proclaim the kingdom of God in the villages of Galilee. Verse 6 says, They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. No doubt they have... It's a, it's a busy, intense season of ministry, multitudes and crowds, needy people following them everywhere. And in verse 10, they return to Jesus and they tell Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus, in his tenderness and compassion, begins to sense their weariness. He senses their physical tiredness. And so the text says he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Mark's account tells us that the purpose of this withdrawal was so that the disciples would have a time of rest. For so many were coming and going, they didn't even have a time to eat. And so Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He wants them to have a vacation. He wants them to have a time of relaxation, recuperation. And so he calls them to this desolate place near the town of Bethsaida. But the text says that when the crowds learned it, they followed him. Mark says that Jesus and the disciples got in a boat and started to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And catch this, the the people saw where they were going. They calculated where they were going to land on the other side and they ran on foot across the sea. So that guess what Jesus and his disciples saw when they got to their quote-unquote spiritual vacation, they saw a great crowd just waiting for them, waiting to receive ministry. Some of you are teachers, and you've been, you long for spring break. You long for vacation so that you can get away from your kids. And imagine finally getting to spring break and going on vacation and traveling, and you get to your destination, and there's your class. A teacher, we've been waiting for you ready for a field trip. And your heart would be like, oh no. I need a break. I need, I need rest. And the disciples must have seen this crowd and in their heart, their hearts must have sank. They must have said, oh no, not more people, more needs, more ministry, but not Jesus. It's amazing how Jesus says, the text says he welcomed them. He opened his arms to them. Mark says that he felt compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. These were not faithful people. These were not believers. These were unbelievers. They followed Jesus because of the miracles. They followed Jesus because of the free medical care. They didn't really believe in him, but 
Jesus loved them anyway. And he poured out his heart, he poured out his life, he poured out his time, his energy, his wisdom to this multitude. He welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of disease, who had need of healing. This went on all day, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. We don't know what time it began, but it's getting close to dinner time. The sun's going down. The, the sun goes down in that part of the land about 6 o'clock, and so maybe this is about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and disciples are beginning to sense a problem. All these people have traveled from their hometown. They've, they've gone to this desolate place, and here's this multitude of 10, 20,000 people, and there's nothing to eat. And what's amazing is that in the entire crowd, in the entire crowd of 10 or 20,000 people, only one person has brought any food. No one has thought to pack any dinner because they're so consumed with just following Jesus and getting there before Jesus does. And the one, one person who's brought food probably was packed by his mom. It was this one boy with five loaves and two fish. And when you think loaves, don't think of these giant loaves of bread that you find at Safeway. Think biscuits. Think scones or rolls. When you think fish, don't think of these giant yellowtails that you caught in the Pacific Ocean. Think sardines. They were these pickled, salted fish used as condiments to flavor the bread. This one kid packs a Lunchable. <laughs> His mom gives him a Lunchable, and in 10, 20,000 people, he's the only one with any food. And the disciples look at this, and they're saying, Wait a second, we have a problem. In a couple hours, we're going to have 10, 20,000 people hungry, far away from their homes, unable to feed themselves. What are we going to do? And so verse 12 says, The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. I believe that verse 12 is, is one of the most interesting and dramatic verses in the whole passage. Because what do we find here? This is startling. What we find in verse 12 is that the disciples have the audacity to tell Jesus what to do. The disciples are instructing Jesus. They are counseling Jesus. They are acting as Jesus' coaches, Jesus' manager. They are telling Jesus. It isn't a suggestion. It isn't a request. It's a, they're, they're instructing Jesus. Jesus, what you need to do is send the crowd away. That's remarkable. These men have lost sight of who they are. They have lost sight of who Jesus is. They are counseling the wonderful counselor. They are directing the one who directs the stars and the wind and the waves. They are instructing the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They are putting themselves in the place where they feel they have the right to tell Jesus what to do. It is amazing. Jesus, what you need to do is send the crowd away. 
We've analyzed the problem. Lots of hungry people. We've analyzed our resources, five loaves and two bread. They don't match up. There's no other way. We have come to our conclusion. We're bringing it to you, and you need to follow it. Otherwise, we're going to have a big mess on our hands. Now, wait a second. Didn't the disciples just see in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus commands the wind and the wind obeys? Didn't they just see that Jesus commands the demons and the demons flee? Didn't they just see that Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead? Isn't right before their very own eyes people being healed and miracles being performed? What's going on here? They come up with a completely pragmatic and human solution to this practical problem. Problem, hungry people, resources, not enough. Solution, send them away. Jesus, this is what you need to do. And they are so confident in their answer that they feel they have the right to instruct Jesus. It's amazing. John tells us that Philip, one of the disciples, actually calculated how much money it would take to feed all these people. You can just see Philip. He's, he's doing, crunching the numbers in his head. He's saying, let's see, 10,000, 20,000 people, one-tenth of a denarius per head. That's just a snack. It's not a full meal. You multiply it out. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, 200 denarii, seven months' wages. That's not enough to feed all these people. He's calculated it all out. He has his spreadsheet. And their solution to this problem is one that completely ignores who's with them. I mean, who is with them? Is the Christ, is the Savior of the world, is the Messiah, is God incarnate, is the King of Israel, is he's right there with them, and he's not against them, he is for them, he is present to bless and to provide. You might be saying, Dan, what, what should they have done? Well, I think it's real easy, right? What they should have done is they should have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, here's the problem. What do you want to do with this? What do you want to do? You're the Lord. You're the master. You're the king. You're the sovereign. Jesus, we'll bring you this problem and, and tell us what to do. But the disciples in their unbelief come up with a purely human solution to a practical problem. Now, I think that in our hearts, we have a temptation right now that we want to talk to the disciples. We're looking at this passage, and, and all of us want to dialogue with the disciples. And our dialogue will go like this, on, on this side of the cross, and we kind of see things clearly from revealed scripture, and we would look at this passage, and, and we would say, guys, come on. I mean, don't you know? Guys, come on. Peter, John, James, don't you guys know? Don't you know who was with you? Don't you know who's right there in front of you? It's Jesus. Sure, you only have five loaves and two bread, and sure, there's this massive multitude, but, but Jesus is with you. Come on, guys, have, have a little more faith. Come on, guys, just, just bring it to Jesus. Come on, guys, Jesus will do an amazing thing if you just trust him, if you just allow him to work his wondrous power in this situation, in your life. Come on, guys. You could do better than this. 
But is it not true, brothers and sisters, that when it comes to the problems in our lives, we respond exactly the same way? Is it not true that we are more like the disciples than we care to think we are? Isn't it true that we come to our situations in our lives? We come to our impossible situations. We come to our trials. And we calculate purely human solutions to practical problems. We analyze the problem. We calculate the resources. We come up with conclusions. We itemize those conclusions into task lists. We prioritize those tasks into our schedulers. We run those schedules with the greatest efficiency. And that's how usually we live our Christian lives. I looked at this passage and it was a mirror for my own heart. This is the default way that I live my life. I come to every situation in life and, and I just analyze it. And I calculate how to deal with it. And I come up with a plan, a, a plan of action. And then I try to execute that plan. And that's great, but I've only left one thing out. That's Jesus. What about Jesus? What about just bringing that issue to Jesus? Like the disciples, we forget who is with us. Like the disciples, we forget who is present to bless us. We forget that Jesus has said to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We forget that Jesus is right there with us in our business. He's right there with us in our marriage. He's right there with us in our dating relationship. He's right there with us in our career. He's right there with us in our school. He's right there with us. But like the disciples, we too, we say, Jesus, I'm going to deal with this in my own strength. I'm going to deal with this in my own resources. And I'll come up with a solution. I'll impress you, Jesus. My solution is going to be so good. When all we need to do is bring it to him. I'll ask you again, what is that one issue in your life that's causing you anxiety or stress or burden this morning? And could it be child of God, could it be that the reason why you're so burdened, the reason why you're so anxious, the reason why you're so discouraged is because you're trying to deal with that problem in your own strength and in your own wisdom. And you're finding that you're just getting to the point where your resources, like those five loaves and two bread, are, are, are running out, that they're so small and you don't have enough. And you've forgotten the person who is with you. That if you just trust him, he'll show that he's more than enough for you. Verse 13, Jesus said to them, I love this, he said, you give them something to eat. It's emphatic in the Greek. You yourselves, disciples, I'm giving you the responsibility to feed this crowd. Disciples are like, are you kidding me? What on earth? We're going to feed these people? We have no food. Jesus, you just sent us out to preach and you said, don't take any money. We don't have any money either. You give them something to eat. 
Jesus presses them to the wall. He gives them an impossible task that they are to perform. And we look at this and we say, what's Jesus doing here? How can he expect the disciples to give them something to eat when they don't have anything to give? And what Jesus is doing is he is drawing out the heart of the disciples. He is placing them in an impossible situation that he may expose the sin that is in their hearts. And the sin that is in their hearts is, catch this, it is the sin of self-sufficiency. It is the sin of self-reliance. The disciples are so filled with themselves that they can't be filled with Jesus. They have to be empty that they may be filled. They have to be broken that they may be blessed. They have to be brought to the end of themselves so that they have no other choice but to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone. And then and only then can Jesus meet their need and pour his power and resources into their life and show that he is more sufficient for any circumstance in their life. But they must be brought to the end of themselves. And so Jesus gives them this impossible situation. You give them something to eat. And what he's trying to do is he's trying them to get them to, to confess. To confess four simple words. Jesus, I can't do it. can't do it. It's impossible. I need you. We need you. You've got to do it. You've got to come through. You've got to show your power. You've got to show your blessing. We have no resources in our own, but you do. And the reason why I believe that God is placing many of you in impossible situations, many of you this morning, we, we, you know, we weep over this as shepherds. We, we, we pray for, we, we're praying for you. And, and we know that many of you are in situations where, where your backs are up against the wall. There's, there seems to be nowhere out. There seems to be no way through. There seems to be no human solutions. These are problems that, that have no way of being improved. And you're looking at this and you're saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Why? Why are you allowing this in my life? You may be even angry at Jesus. Jesus, why have you put me here? And what Jesus is doing in your life is he's, he's loving you. He knows that you're too filled with yourself that he can't fill you. He knows that you're too proud in your self-sufficiency that you can't find in him your sufficiency. 
He knows that you need to be broken, that you may be blessed. And so he's trying to uproot the sin in your heart, which is the sin of self-reliance, self-sufficiency. He's trying to bring it out in the open so that you would confess it and repent of it and just cast yourself at his mercy and just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And by that I mean I don't just need you for my salvation. I don't just need you for my justification. I don't just need you to get to heaven. I, I need you for my marriage. I need you for my, my bank account. I need you for my, my relationship with my boss. I need you for my, my relationship with my kid for his, his, his starting school. I, I, I need you for every area of my life. I can't do it. I quit and I want to trust you. And when we come to that point, Jesus shows his sufficiency. Verse 14, uh, verse 13, Jesus says, you give them something to eat and they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, I think that's like a sarcastic remark. I think disciples are, it's their way of, of protesting, what, you want us to buy food for all these people? I have enough trouble coming home from Costco for four hungry kids and so many groceries. Think about 10,000 people, 12 men. So, well, you want us to buy food to feed these people? And in verse 14, we move from the disciples' insufficiency to Christ's abounding sufficiency for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. I love how Jesus orders the crowd. Maybe you've seen f mass feedings where the weak are trampled and only the strongest food. Well, this is going to be a feeding where everyone's going to get a share. They sit down in groups about 50 each. Jesus thanks God for the food. And then did you notice Luke records the miracle in a most understated way. He's not adding sound effects. He's not saying kablawi, shazam, wow, abracadabra. He just kind of understates the miracle in such a soft way that if you read it too fast, you'll miss it. It's just he broke the blows and he gave them to the disciples and he's giving and he's giving and he's giving and he's giving. Loaves and fish, loaves and fish, loaves and fish. And verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. The word is used for the foddering of animals. They were stuffed to the gills. They ate till they could eat no more. They ate till they were sick of food. They even gave food back. It was so much. There were 12 baskets full of broken pieces. The point in this text is that when we trust in Jesus, when we rely upon Jesus, when we bring our situations to Jesus, he not only shows himself to be enough for us, he shows himself to be more than enough for us. 
If we trust in our own resources, there will always be a lack. If we trust in Jesus, there will always be an abundance. So I'm seeing this passage a parallel to the manna that God gave to the nation of Israel through the prophet Moses. And if that's the case, then Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the greater provider because when God gave manna to the nation of Israel, he gave them just what was enough for the day. When Jesus provides bread, he gives more than enough for what they need. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken people, pieces. I think this is, uh, the 12 baskets is, is intentional. I think it's purposeful. I don't think this is a, an accident or a coincidence. There were 12 disciples there were 12 apostles. Jesus calls them the 12 in chapter 9, verse 1, and each have a basket of food left over. And I think what Jesus was communicating to each disciple and giving them 12 baskets of leftovers, he was saying to each disciple individually that if you trust me, I will be more than enough for you. Peter, I'll be more than enough for you. John, James, Philip, Andrew, trust me. Trust me. I am sufficient. This is a passage dealing with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. God calls us through this passage to trust in Christ for no matter what we are facing this day and to repent of our spirit of self-sufficiency. And you might be saying, Dan, that's great. You know, it's a great passage, great story, um, great lessons. But you don't understand my life. I mean, I look at the Word of God on Sundays and things seem so clear, but Mondays things get so confusing. I mean, Dan, you don't understand. My, my car broke down and my marriage needs work and my boss is mad at me and I don't get along with my coworkers and my bank account's empty and my relationships are stressful. Dan, life is really messy. And how do I take the vision of this text that seems so clear on Sunday and translate it into a different walk of faith on Monday? And I want to direct you to a quote by William Hendrickson, who was a commentator, who said this, and I paraphrase. The issue with the disciples in this passage is that they were more aware of the problem that was before them then they were aware of the person who was with them. The issue of the disciples was that they were more aware of the problems that was before them than they were of the person who was with them. And because they were so 
aware of the problem, that the problem seems so big and the person seems so small. They doubted. When the truth of the matter is that the person was the one who was big. And in light of him, the problem was really the thing that was small. And isn't that true of our lives as well? Isn't that why we doubt? Isn't that why we are perplexed? Isn't that why our lives seem confusing? Is we've become so aware of the problems before us, we've lost sight of the person who is with us. And the person who is with us is Jesus Christ. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Abide in me and I in you and I will bear my fruit in you. Jesus is right there with us, present to bless, present to comfort, present to shepherd, present to provide. And all we need to do is just trust him. It's just trust him. He will show himself to be more than enough for us. In John chapter 6, John records what happened the day after the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 32, Jesus said to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Verse 50, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 55, my flesh is the true food. My blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus explains that as amazing as this miracle was, that he multiplied five loaves and two fish into a mess of feasts that satisfied thousands of people. As important as the lesson is that Jesus is sufficient to meet all our needs, that we can trust in him to provide everything that we need for life and godliness. As important as it is for us to see that Jesus is right there with us in whatever circumstance or problem that we face and that we need to repent of our spirit of self-sufficiency and bring our situations to him. As important as all those things are, this miracle has a greater purpose. It has a greater fulfillment. It points to a greater reality. The bread that was multiplied for the satisfaction of thousands on that day in that desolate place in the land of Galilee was merely a picture 
of the bread that comes down from heaven, from the Father, that if we eat of it, it will satisfy our souls for eternity. And Jesus says, the day after, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. I am the one who feeds your soul so that if you eat of me, if you taste of me, if you partake of who I am in the deepest part of your heart, you will be satisfied and you will not hunger again. You will be satisfied in a way that nothing in this world can ever satisfy you. No possession, no success, no achievement, no person will ever satisfy you like I can satisfy you. I am the bread. And what Jesus says is to believe in me, to have faith in me, to experience saving faith. This is the heart of saving faith. This isn't an add-on to saving faith. This is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. He says, to believe in me means to eat. It means that you taste of who I am in the deepest part of your heart so that my grace, my mercy, my sufficiency, my power, my sovereignty takes residence in your heart and so delights and rejoices in your heart that you are satisfied. You are satisfied. You don't need the world and its riches because it's false bread. You don't need academic achievement. It's false bread. You don't need people to affirm you and to prove you. It's false bread. I am the true bread who satisfies your soul. And Jesus says, what it means to believe in me is you eat. You eat. You don't just gaze at me from a distance. You don't just believe true facts and figures about me. You partake of who I am so that your soul says, this is so good. How could I want anything else when I have Jesus? In verse 51, Jesus says, he gets more specific, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My body, my physical flesh, which will be nailed to the cross as a substitute for guilty sinners, which will experience the full force of the wrath and judgment of God poured out upon an innocent substitute. My flesh is the bread. It is the all-satisfying food. 
that will satisfy your soul for eternity. Come and taste of the goodness of the cross. Come and taste of the wonder of God's mercy in the flesh, in the body of Jesus Christ nailed to the cross for our sins. Come and partake of its goodness so that it enters into your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and produces joy, produces peace, produces contentment, produces satisfaction. And we will find when we do that, when we come by faith, that Jesus is more than enough for us. He is more than enough to provide all that we need in this life. And he is more than enough to satisfy our souls forever and ever. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this bread, the bread of life which comes from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. How sweet it is to know him. How sweet it is to be found in him. How sweet it is to trust him. How sweet it is when we are finally emptied of our selfish pride, our self-sufficiency, and we are brought to simply trust in Christ. How he is enough for us. How he is more than enough for us. We come this day to feed on his sufficiency, to experience his goodness, his power give to you all the praise.